Well, again, great to be with you this morning. Uh, If you have your Bible with you today, I always hope that you do, uh, turn with me to the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians. Uh, If you were with us last week, uh, we opened up our study of Philippians by walking through uh, the planting of that church in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. Uh, We took a look at uh, how it got started. Uh, We saw who some of the first members were. Um, how Paul shared Jesus with these people. And of course, we saw all that God did to transform hearts and lives in this region through the power uh, of the gospel. Uh, The launch of the church at Philippi uh, shows us that the gospel has the ability to redeem people, to to unify, to bring even the unlikeliest people uh, together. But something that we're going to also learn about the gospel through Philippians is that the gospel transcends and transforms our everyday circumstances. The gospel through Philippians shows us that it transcends and transforms our everyday circumstances. That if there was ever a call to stir God's people in joy, even in the worst of circumstances, This letter is it. You see, we know, we know that from outward appearances, Paul and this church at Philippi uh, that he's writing to have, they actually have very little reason to rejoice. Paul is imprisoned by the Romans, and there was all sorts of trials and persecution happening against the church. But yet, this entire letter is a plea uh, it's, a, it's an encouragement to the church to find joy in all that God is for them in Jesus Christ. Uh, it's such an encouraging letter because what we're going to see is it's so hope-filled. But at the same time, and for the same reason, this letter uh, does tend to bring out some skepticism. Because we're going to see Paul write things like this. Uh, for me to live as Christ... Uh, but to die is gain, right? And that makes a, a really cool banner, right? And then that, that's a really cool design. Like our team did really good on that, but come on, right? To die is gain, right? To die is gain, really, uh, Paul? Or, or he'll say something like this. He'll say, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, like always. Always rejoice, no matter what, Paul, like, what's the Greek there? We need to do a Greek study. Do you mean all the time, right? Or here, here's a good one in Philippians. He's going to say, a little bit later, he's going to say, do not be anxious about anything. And to that, I would say, like, come on, Paul, about anything, right? He must not have known that we'd be going through COVID in our world, right? He must not have been aware, right? Anything. And so, again, there's a lot of reasons to, to love this letter because it's so deeply encouraging, But at the same time, it's a letter that can be somewhat easy to dismiss because it's so challenging. These words from Paul in this letter, they almost seem too optimistic. They almost seem like they're they're disconnected to, to reality. And so today, I want us to look at Paul's greeting, his greeting to the Philippians. And I want us to see that this is so much more than just uh, a standard plug-in greeting. That actually, these words from Paul give us great insight 
into what drove and motivated Paul. Uh, These first two verses are going to reveal to us how Paul could write a letter with such joy, such warmth, such sincerity while he was in prison. It's going to show us uh, why he can be so confident to tell people who were struggling and suffering to rejoice always. And so let's read through Paul's greeting again, and then we're going to work through this together. Um, Levi already read it for us just about a minute ago, but we can always continue to read the word over and over again, so we'll do that. Paul greets the Philippians like this. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace, and pe- grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so here's the big question that we're asking today and that I believe that Paul is answering. Uh, what was it that drove and shaped Paul in this letter? You could say it this way, maybe. What was it that gripped Paul's heart? What drove his joy and confidence in Christ amidst his challenging circumstances? And, and to answer that, I want to highlight, we'll call them realities. I want to I highlight a few realities that Paul had built his life on. We're going to see, actually, six realities in this greeting that shape and inform everything for Paul, his life and this letter. And here's why that that matters. Um, Because we have to understand, all of us, we are all building our lives on certain realities, on certain things that we believe are true about ourselves and true about our world. And those realities, what we believe are realities, will always impact everything. They inform where we find hope, where we find joy, how we experience the ups and downs of life, where we find peace, where we determine our purpose, and even how we interact with God and with others. We all build our lives on certain realities. And those realities, uh, our worldview, you could say, truly informs who we are and therefore how we live. Uh, So for example... Uh, I know this is a little sensitive, uh, but when I was young, um, particularly in middle school and the start of high school, um, I believed, I believed, my reality was, um, there's no hope for my life. Um, I believed that there was no place for me here. Um, I believed that I had no purpose. That was my reality. And so, uh, unfortunately, that led me to Uh, deeply, deeply for years, struggling with the thought of ending my life. Uh, And it brought me to the edge uh, of hurting myself uh, a couple of serious times. Um, And as a result, I even dropped out of high school uh, my senior year. A lot of you didn't know that, but I never graduated. Uh, It was tough. It was a really tough season. Uh, But you see, my, my decisions there, my choices were based on a reality that I believed to be true about myself and this world. Because again, how we see the world and how we see ourselves always informs what we do 
and shapes the way that we live. Our realities impact how we live. That's why this is so important. And so let's look at Paul's reality now and where he got his sense of rootedness and joy. I'll start with reality number one for Paul, which is this, that we receive grace from God. Reality number one for Paul, we receive grace from God. Again, Paul opens with this. He says, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want us to understand that grace and peace, grace and peace are basically a summation of the gospel. And that's why you'll find that Paul basically opens and closes all of his letters in this way or with these words. So again, this is not just like a routine habit here, right? It's like a, not like an auto signature on Gmail, right? Paul includes these words because they were central to the reality of his life. And so let's start by looking at grace briefly. Um, I don't know about you, uh, but uh, until I first heard the gospel clearly, and I was about 19 years old or so, I never really, I never truly understood grace. Um, I grew up in the church uh, my whole life, uh, but it was pretty legalistic. Um, it was very legalistic. And so I never really heard, or, 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 or I should say maybe, I never really understood this concept of grace. That God's grace is his unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor towards undeserving people. Yeah, I'll say that again. God's grace is his unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor towards undeserving people. So listen, we have to understand this really clearly. It's central to the gospel that grace is not a substance or an abstract reality. It is a posture, actually, of the living God towards his people. Now, typically, uh, there tends to be, and we'll talk about this briefly, there tends to be a classic distinction uh, between God's common grace to all people and his saving grace to those who are his, those who follow Jesus. So, uh, life itself, for example, that's God's common grace, the fact that we even have life, right? Um, Things like laughter, friends, Music, movies, uh, cookie dough, all right, for some of you. Uh, sunsets, the stars in the sky. This is where I insert the joke. Notre Dame football, right? That's what I would say. All those things are manifestations of God's common grace that are extended to all people, regardless of whether they believe in him or belong to him. However, We know this is nothing compared. Those are great things, all good things. But it's nothing compared to his saving grace that is offered to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so let me give you some examples of that. So Jesus living a perfect life in our place and then giving to us or crediting to us his perfect record of righteousness, that's saving grace. Or Jesus taking all of our unrighteousness, all of it, all of the punishment it deserves on the cross, that's saving grace. Jesus rising from the grave, defeating sin, Satan, and death for us, saving grace. Jesus reconciling us back to the Father 
so that we can become now adopted children, sons and daughters of God. That's his grace. Or how about the reality that God promises, promises to work all things in your life, even the trials, the pain, the struggles for good. That's his grace. Grace is unearned kindness to undeserving rebels. It's amazing. And all of this happens, all of this happens through the person of Jesus Christ. That's why Titus 2 says, talking about, the, about Jesus himself, says this, For the grace of God has appeared, that's Jesus, bringing salvation to all people. Right? This is written, okay, this is written because Jesus is God's grace in the flesh. And so today, Maybe it's this morning or this evening if you're watching later. But today, if you're having a hard time understanding or wrapping your mind around the grace of God, the answer is to look to Jesus, right? Look to grace in the flesh. This is the gospel. This is the gospel that we enter into a relationship with God through faith by God's grace. And then we continue in that salvation, in that relationship with God by grace. Which means, which means, if you're paying attention, taking notes, we need God's grace. And it's why Jesus offers grace to us as a free gift. And I know uh, this could be somewhat difficult to grasp. Um, This is part of, uh, there's a part of all of us, I think, Uh, that believes that we need to earn our right standing with God, right? We need to do something, right? We need to earn our way. And right, aren't we like this? We don't like to owe anyone anything, right? So someone like even whatever, maybe after the service, you go out to coffee and someone's like, oh, no problem, I got it. They don't even think about it. And your, your reaction is, oh, thanks a lot. I'll get you next time. Right? We don't want to owe anybody anything, anytime, right? And that's, has to do with our pride and um, I think it's rooted in this achievement, uh, sense of achievement or, or need for achievement and do things on our own. But that's not the gospel. The point of the gospel is you can't, we cannot make our way to God on our own. There's nothing that we can do. It's all grace. And we participate in his grace by trusting him. That's it. It stops there. And Paul, clearly, the apostle Paul got that. Paul lived with a sense of God's grace, God's undeserved favor on his life was a foundational reality for his life. And so let me ask you today, let me ask you today, regardless of your difficulties, what would your level of confident joy be if you truly believed God's grace upon your life? If you truly understood and set your feet today on the reality that while there was an infinitely large gap between between the holiness of God and your sin, between God and you, infinite gap, and yet he chose through his son Jesus to live in your place and to die in your place, to give you the gift of saving grace. If you truly set your feet on that foundation How would that shape your life and your level of joy this morning? Let's move to the next reality for Paul. Number two, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. 
Back to verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God. There it is. Our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, so again, Paul says, not only grace to you, but peace from God, our Father. So grace comes to us as a free gift. And then the primary result of that undeserved, unmerited gift is peace. It's peace. Now, when we hear peace, um, I think culturally there's a lot of things that might go into our minds, come to our minds. Maybe think of us, when we hear the word peace, we think of like being really relaxed, right? Or some of you, when you hear the word peace, you think of being like in a quiet space. It's like Zen or something. Or some of you, like, uh, you might think of like, if you're, you're around that age, or maybe you've like watched like cars or something like that, you think of like hippies, right? Who's that mater? I don't forget. There was like the hippie truck or something like that, right? You'll think of that. That's peace, right? But biblical peace, it isn't really that, right? It's actually rooted in this Hebrew word. It's familiar to a lot of us, I think, shalom, which means, it means this, total flourishing in every single direction. That's what shalom is. It's total flourishing in every direction, I'll try to keep this simple, but shalom is based on the reality that whereas sin distorts everything, God's peace restores or puts those things back together. So how this works is, as we receive grace from God, there is peace with God, meaning that we are put back together in right standing with God. And then that peace that we are then rooted in overflows into every single area of our life. Which means then, which means that God's peace is a restoration of order and harmony, not only with him, our creator, but also peace internally and in our relationships with other people. And let's, let's think about this. Right? Don't let this truth... We're going through this sort of quickly. So I hope that these truths aren't going to bounce off of you too quickly. Right? But think about this. By the grace of God, you are at peace with God. There is an eternal peace agreement between you and the creator of the universe. It means there's, there's no longer strife between you and God. There's no more brokenness between you and God. There's no more barrier between you and God. You are no longer considered his enemy. And all of this is not because of anything that you have done, but by everything that he has done through his son, Jesus. You are, this morning, you are favored by God, reconciled, restored, put back together, at peace, because of Jesus. That's true of you. So, This is another reality that shapes, it shapes Paul's joy-filled worldview, God's peace in Jesus. And so let me ask you another question. There's going to be a few of these reflections today. Let me ask you another question. What would your level of joy be if you totally believed and trusted that you were at peace with God? If you truly believe and trusted that there's no brokenness between you and the creator, your father, in your day-to-day life, how would that change your outlook on life? 
Moving on, reality, reality number three for Paul, we are in Christ, he says. In Christ, it's a reality for Paul. Notice Paul says this really short phrase, to all the saints, here it is, in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi. Now we know that this is a common phrase that's used in the New Testament, right? particularly by Paul. And each time he says this, he says this phrase, in Christ He's always referring to our union with Jesus. He's talking about our position before God and our new status or our new standing with him. And it's actually so deep, so deep, because this touches every aspect of what God has done for us. That little phrase, it's so deep, so important. Listen, salvation comes to us. Salvation comes to us because we are in Christ. Justification, I'm going to throw out some theological words. Justification, meaning we are declared not guilty, righteous before God. Why? Because we are in Christ. Sanctification, we are, again, progressively becoming more like Jesus. We continue to walk in and, and, and live out our salvation. Again, why? Because we are in Christ. We are made sons and daughters because of this. We are made part of God's people, the church. We are forever in the perfect love of God. We are free, free from the fear of death. We can go to God in confidence anytime we want because we are in Christ. I hope this is settling in. I hope it makes sense. It's coming together. I really do. You've got to understand this because this is the gospel, that we are united to Jesus by grace through faith. And in that unity, in that peace, you receive a brand new identity from God. And we call that being in Christ. If you belong to Jesus today, This is who you are. This is your identity. This is what God says about you. And listen, some of you need to hear this today. You really need to hear this. And what God says about you is the truest thing about you. It has authority. He declares who you are. He declares your worth, your purpose, And your identity. So if you are in Christ, you should be living out then, living out that identity. We have to stop with this. We are not defined by our emotions. We are not defined by our coworkers, by our friends, by our family. You are not defined. Hear me. You're not defined by your failures. You're not defined by your potential. You're not defined by your successes or your career. Are you with me today? We are not. We are not what we think or not what we do. This is so important to understand in our context and in our culture. You are not. You are not what you have achieved. And likewise, you are not what you have failed to do. So to the stay-at-home mom, to the CEO... If you're single today, you're a teacher, you're a college student trying to figure out life, you're engaged, you're divorced. Listen, that's just a description 
of your season of life and your particular circumstances. It has nothing to do with your value or worth before the living God. You are in Christ. So let me ask you today, what would your level of joy be? Your level of confident hope. If your value and self-worth was rooted in the reality that you are in Christ. What if you allowed what God said about you to be the, the thing that's truest about you? Reality number four, we are called saints. We are called saints. Again, he says, to all the saints, there it is, in Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi. Some of you didn't know that there was all this truth in a greeting. There is. The Bible's amazing. So, by grace, we are at peace with God. We are in Christ. And therefore, we are made saints of God. Now, it would have been really easy and true for Paul to just call them Philippians, right? He could have done that. But he has a different purpose in mind here. He's not concerned with their, uh, their, their physical makeup or their geographical location. Not at all. Rather, he's concerned about who they are and what they are, more specifically, in the sight of God. And so he says, by grace, you are saints in Christ. And what is a saint? What is a saint? Or what does it mean uh, that we are saints? Um, Because culturally, uh, I think there's a couple of thoughts here as well. I grew up in upstate New York. Um, a very Catholic area of the United States. My father grew up Catholic as well, and so all his brothers and sisters, he's one of like seven children, all his brothers and sisters are Catholic as well. And so um, when we think of saints, I think people tend to have uh, the Catholic idea of like super holy people who did super holy things, right? Like they proved themselves on the earth, and then they earned the title of saint. Some of them while they're living, when they're really, really old. Some of them while they're dead. They even know. But congratulations, you're dead. Now you're a saint, right? That's the idea. Right? Or, or maybe you've heard this uh, phrase before. I don't know if it's Southern culture or what, but, oh, that kid's just a saint. Like, she's a saint. You'll hear that. It means that they have really good behavior, right? Um, so, so saint has this idea behind it of, of self-effort. It's being morally upright. But again, that's certainly not the gospel and not what Paul is referring to here. Our saint status, like grace, peace, has nothing to do with what we do, actually, uh, but is solely based on God's grace and kindness to us in Jesus. So if you are in Christ today, by faith and by his grace, you are called a saint. God sees you that way. Not because you always act like a saint, right? But because God says you are a saint. And here's what I found. You know, the more, the more that we understand how God sees us and how God defines us, 
the more you will begin to live out and act like how he's called you or determined you to be. Um, for me, like personally, think of it this way. I'll use myself as an example. Um, like two years ago, I guess, or so, two years ago, um, I was not, I was not the pastor of Freedom Village Church, okay? But then, after I became the pastor here, like we had our first service together, February 2nd, 2020. Some of you remember back then? That was pre-COVID, like three weeks. Some of you remember that far back. But after that, like, let's just say, like, I wake up. And I wake up in the morning, one morning, and I had a rough night. I wake up in the morning, and I'm like, eh, you know, I don't know, I'm just sitting here eating breakfast. I don't really feel like being the pastor of FBC today. Eh, I don't feel like it. I'm not going to be the pastor today. Maybe tomorrow. Right? Maybe this weekend. Maybe, don't I have to preach or something? I'll do it then. But today, Monday through Friday, eh, I'm fine. And by the way, that didn't happen. Okay, that didn't happen. Just to give you some comfort. Uh, but even if it did, right, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Right? I am the pastor. I am the pastor here, regardless of how I feel. And it's the same with us. We are saints. That's true of you. You might wake up tomorrow uh, and not feel like it. You may feel like you're unworthy, undeserving. You are. (laughs) But you are a saint if you are in Christ. It's part of your identity. You are a saint, which literally means saint. It means that you are holy and Specifically, you are set apart. That's what it means. Being a saint means that you are set apart, put to the side by God and for God. It means that you belong to the Lord. He separated you from the world and brought you into his fold. That's what it means to be a saint. It's incredible. In Jesus, God actually, he calls you to himself. And he sets you apart as precious, as his unique, redeemed treasure and possession. And he affirms you in that calling by calling you a saint because you are his. So understand, God doesn't just give you grace and peace and then leave you alone. He actually goes to the point of calling you and I his unique people. Which leads us to another question. How would you view uh, yourself and others? How would that view change from what it currently is now? If you knew that you were set apart by God as a saint. That name, that title has been placed upon your life. So what would your level of joy be if that truth truly sunk into your heart? Two more to go. Reality number five. We are servants. We are servants of God. We are servants of God. Paul says this of himself, actually, and Timothy, his co-worker in the gospel. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. So again, we see here clearly Paul is referring to himself and Timothy as the servants, right? But, okay, we've got to take everything in context. We know from the rest of the New Testament, even from Jesus' teaching, that those who follow Jesus are called servants as well. 
And I know uh, we don't normally associate being a servant uh, as a good thing. It kind of has a negative connotation. But I'll just say it uh, this way. It all depends, really, on who you're serving. Being a servant depends on who you're serving, whether it's good or bad. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 11. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. By the way, this here, this is language of service. Uh, Servanthood with him as our master. And so when you are under grace, when you are under God's grace, you are at peace with God. You are in Christ, set apart as a saint, and you belong to God as a servant of God. And there's nothing negative here at all. This is not, this is not servanthood uh, as in manual labor. This is not servanthood as in uh, being held against your will. Like, oh, I just cannot wait. Someday I'm free and I can get out from underneath this, like, this taskmaster who's like, you know, pushing on me and forcing me to do all these things. That's not this. This is being a servant in the sense that I am gladly and freely submissive. I'm glad that I'm owned, actually, by my creator. This is saying everything that I have, all that I have, all that I am is his because I have freely chosen to give my all to him. Again, it's glad submission. Being a servant is recognizing that he is, actually, he is, he alone is the only good master and that he never asks anything of me that is bad for me. It's recognizing that this life is not my own, but is his, and that I should therefore align my purposes in life with his purposes, because why? He is the author of life and of all good things. Being a servant, it's recognizing that true fulfillment, true fulfillment, true joy, peace in life, it actually comes It's given to you from self-denial, sacrifice, and selfless service to God and towards others. It's understanding that we get the opportunity, you get the opportunity to serve God. So we go back to self-reflection. And again, I, I ask, who is the practical owner of your life? Maybe that's a hard question for you to answer on your own. And so you need maybe a really close family member, uh, maybe a really close friend to, to, to tell you. If you asked the closest person to you, who do you think is the practical owner of my life? What would they say? Would it be clear? Oh, it's so clearly, so clear. Your life is not your own. You've given everything to Jesus. Is that what they would say about you? Who are you primarily serving? Your career? Your self-interests? Money? Fame? Glory? A spouse? Your children? Who are you primarily serving? And what would your level of joy be? (laughs) 
if you are truly serving the Lord first and foremost with your life because you are his servant first and foremost. And then we close with this last reality today. Reality number six, we belong to his body. We belong to his body. Paul, understand, we we belong to his body. Or he would say, I belong to the body of Jesus Christ. You could say, we belong to the church. You could say it that way as well. His body being the church. He says this, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Paul says, all of this good news, all of these gifts, the grace, the peace, the reality that we're in Christ, we're saints, servants of God, all of this, he says, to those at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So what we know, you gotta, you got to see this in the context. Okay? It's not as obvious as some of the others. But what we know from here then is that all this grace, all this peace from God, being in Christ as servants, saints, it does not, this is so important, it does not happen in isolation. It doesn't happen in a vacuum, you could say. Never. Actually, all of these realities that Paul is realizing and referring to here, all of them are landing in a particular local context among ordinary people in an ordinary place. Here in the context, it's at Philippi. And for us, it's here in Seoul or in Hebongchan, at Freedom Village, in this local context. So, so Paul is not talking, this is so, so important. Paul is not talking to a loose collection of individuals at Philippi here. Not at all. He's talking to a local body of believers. He's talking to a local church. You know, listen, you know, I know, I know this. The local church, because I'm a pastor of a local church, the, the local church is so misunderstood. So misunderstood. What it is and why is it important and do I need to be there? All that because the local church has a tendency or some of you can have experienced this that hurt you or you've heard bad teaching there or there's been abuse or failure, whatever it might be. It's so misunderstood. But we know it's absolutely, the local church is absolutely central to the scriptures and to God's purposes in the world. That actually the local church is at the heart of the New Testament. It's at the heart. We can't, can't overlook this. That Paul, what did he do? He planted local churches. Paul wrote letters to pastors and people in local churches. All of the teaching, all of the correction, all of the encouragement, it's to who? Local churches. People in local churches. So this, I don't know, it might be worth writing down, I don't know, but there is no such thing, we have to get this, there is no such thing as a follower of Jesus in the New Testament who does not belong to a local church. Doesn't exist. Because it is central to God's plan and your growth. It's central. Which means that you are actually harming yourself when you do not, when you choose to not insert yourself 
into a local church. Listen to what John Stott wrote about this. It's so powerful. Maybe the strongest words about this dichotomy. So powerful. He said this. This, like, read this, like, like hit me in the face. Like, both ways. I was like, here and then here. Like, both ways. It was, it's, it's pretty strong. He says this. And he's, um, by the way, he's British. So you can just kind of imagine this in a British accent. I won't try. So there's a hint of maybe sarcasm here. I don't know. But he says, I am assuming that we are all committed to the church. We are not only Christian people. We are also church people. We are not only committed to Christ. We are also committed to the body of Christ. At least I hope so. I trust that none of my readers is this grotesque anomaly, an unchurched Christian. The New Testament knows nothing of such a person. For the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought. The church is not an accident of history. On the contrary, the church is God's new community. And of course, this was not just a John Stott opinion thing. Well, that's nice, John. Good for you, but... But I don't know about that. No, no, no. This is the culture of the scriptures. The New Testament assumes that you belong to a body of believers that is serving one another for the building up of the body and for your good. It assumes it. Right? That's the whole message of 1 Corinthians 12. Go read it later today, after this. You know, turn off the YouTube, whatever. Go read 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. Go read it later today. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Nothing to do, like you can read that at your wedding. It has everything to do with the local church. It's all about the love chapter, if you know what I'm talking about. Read that in the context of the local church. That's the context. You'll see there, though, we are called to be attached to a local body. That we are not to be disconnected that we are not to be in the church when it's convenient or in the church and participating in the church uh, when we feel like it. We are called to belong to, to serve, and grow with a local body of believers that have qualified local leadership within them, which is why Paul says, with the overseers and the deacons. Let me be really clear. This is not a pitch for you to belong and insert yourself into Freedom Village. It's not my goal. Actually, it's not. I'm not trying to bait and switch you with this. But my goal is to tell you what the New Testament is saying and to implore you, whether it's here or somewhere else in Seoul, find a local church and insert yourself there. Serve there. Be discipled there. Start discipling others there. Give yourself to the local church because you're called to do that, whether it's here or somewhere else. That's not my concern. So let me ask you another question. (laughs) What would your level of joy be if you truly committed yourself to a group of people who you knew, who you knew were called and committed to love you, to serve you, and to help you look more like Jesus. If that was their objective, 
We want you to come here into this group with us so that we can love you, serve you, give you everything that you need, and help you be more like Jesus. That's the goal of why we want you in this group. That's why I want you to come eat lunch with me today. Think about this. Honestly, what would make us not want to belong to a people like that? Makes no sense. I'll leave it there. So we come full circle now. And now we ask once again, how could Paul write this letter to Philippi that is so joy-centered and hope-filled? How can he write in such a warm and sincere way while he's in prison? How can he be so confident in his encouragement to a people who were going through trials and struggles of their own, struggles that he knew about? How could he tell this group of people who were suffering to rejoice again and again I say rejoice and again I say rejoice? What would move Paul to write words like to live is Christ and to die is gain? Answer, Paul had been gripped by the gospel of Jesus and moved, he was moved by the reality that the life, death, and resurrection brings about in our lives. Paul knew clearly, he had set his feet firmly on the truth that by faith in Jesus, By faith in Jesus, we have access to God. We have peace with God. That we are found to be in Christ as saints and servants of God. He had joy because he knew that these gospel realities didn't just take place in isolation, he wasn't alone. But they took place within the context of ordinary people, just like you and me. In the local church. It's no wonder, it's no wonder then that Paul is filled with so much joy. Because he was so totally gripped by the realities of the gospel. Because his feet were set firm on who God is, on what God had done, and who God had called him to be. And now this same gospel, the same gospel, it should cause us to well up in hope, to well up in joy and confidence, no matter what trial or circumstance we face, because the same realities that were true of Paul are true for all of those who believe that Jesus is both Lord and Savior. And so church family, Church family, what realities, what realities are shaping your life today? What realities are shaping your life today, shaping the way that you live? I pray that it would be the realities of the gospel. Let's pray together.